You're listening to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm David Levin. Today, we're talking about how opioid painkillers are being overprescribed and what some healthcare providers are doing to fix that. As a pain physician, I do prescribe some of my patients opioids for as part of their chronic pain care, and yet I don't believe that the vast use of opioids in, our, in the U.S. has positively addressed pain. That's Dr. Chad Brummett from the University of Michigan. He specializes in pain management, and he's working on new ways to reduce the amount of opioids prescribed to patients. He says that's still a major cause of the opioid crisis that's spreading throughout the country. Dr. Brummett covered that and more during a recent conference at Harvard called Stigma and Access to Treatment. It was the second of two conferences on the topic. The first one was in Michigan last May. In this episode, he talks about his approach with Mary Bassett, director of Harvard Chan's FXP Center for Health and Human Rights. So you're, um, you're trained as an anesthesiologist, you're a clinician, you're a researcher, uh, and now you've also become really a public person, not just in Michigan, but nationally, on crafting a response to um, the overdose crisis that we've seen that began with the profligate prescribing of, of painkillers. Uh, people often say this is no longer a prescription uh, opioid crisis. It's a problem of heroin. It's a problem of fentanyl. Um, but, of course, uh, it was over-prescribing of prescription opioids that sort of opened the door uh, to the, the current um, escalation that we saw. Could you just reflect a little bit on where prescription opioids fit in the whole picture of the op- overdose uh, epidemic? Yeah, I think you're right that as we look year over year and try and think about solutions to what is a, a ma- the, the biggest public health problem facing the country right now, uh, there is no single answer. And so I do believe heroin and fentanyl are, are driving mortality today. I think that's pretty obvious. That's a data-driven statement. And that, you know, there are other solutions that will effectively change mortality today, such as better access to addiction treatment, decreased stigma, the things that we're really planning to focus on uh, at the Harvard-Michigan Summit in October. I think that that's, you know, really where the focus should be today, better distribution and access to naloxone, this life-saving anecdote that just just shouldn't be questionable. I mean, really, we need to put it out there more. But I, I come back though, and 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 say, at its core, at its root, this is an iatrogenic problem. You know, physicians and providers, advanced practice practitioners, we had to write these prescriptions. So when I ever, whenever I give a lecture to a group of physicians, I'm always very clear. I'm part of the opioid epidemic. I helped create the opioid epidemic. I didn't mean to. It wasn't my intent. I meant to provide great care, but I prescribed too much. I I was over-prescribing, not understanding the ill effect of what I was doing. And I think that most physicians, all physicians and all APPs really want to take that level of ownership because I think only through that level of ownership will we see change. Now, I'd also like to believe I'm here for change. I'm here for positive. I'm here to make a difference today. And I think we really need to be very, very careful about this counter-narrative of how this is no longer a prescribing epidemic. I I do believe at its core, and even today, prescriptions are still in part fueling the epidemic because many of the patients who move down the path of heroin and fentanyl begin with a prescription. Rather than only studying those folks using opioids, we, we really saw an opportunity for a preventative narrative, thinking about how to shepherd people through the path of acute care 
so surgery, dentistry, emergency medicine, trauma, where most people coming in for those care episodes are not using opioids, and yet the the exposure is predictable. You can go down to our pre-op right now, and I could walk through pre-op, and without really knowing much about the patient other than what surgery they're having, I can tell you who's going to get an opioid and how much they're going to get. And so this really became an opportunity to think about shepherding people through that path to not only ensure that they were healthy at the end of it, but also thinking about their the community and their friends and family and what can happen if you sort of are spilling excess pills in the community, which can certainly lead to diversion and misuse. And we have a really unique platform in our state to ensure that we weren't only doing this at the level of a, a major academic medical center, but really thinking about what this looked like in big communities, small communities, rural settings, urban settings. And are you talking about Michigan Open? I am. Uh, when you talk about the wider platform, can you? I know that it stands for Michigan Open Prescribing Engagement Network, and uh, that's the acronym Open. Uh, but can you just say a little bit more about what it is, what you do, because it is a public-facing, um, it is a public-facing network, not just aimed at academics. Yeah, I think that that's a, a distinguishing factor. That while we, while Michigan Open does a lot of research, we're really um, interested in serving the community. So we're uh, Michigan Open really came together to sort of initially think about surgery and how to do better management of pain while really reducing the overprescribing of opioids after surgery. And then that is now spilled into dentistry, and we're now working with emergency medicine, thinking not only about sort of how to better manage pain in emergency medicine, but even thinking about naloxone distribution and even MAT induction in the ERs, and then trauma. And so really thinking about acute care episodes. The other unique factor of, of Michigan Open is we are a collaboration. We are uh, partially funded by Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, so Medicaid, but also leveraging funding from Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan, which is our dominant private payer in our state. And we've really been able to tap into these networks where you have 72 hospitals with a physician, a nurse, and Blue Cross all physically coming together three times a year to talk about quality. And we were able to sort of superimpose an opioid net narrative on top of that collaborative to get real-world prescribing data, real-world consumption data through their existing patient-reported outcome platforms. And we've been, um, I think, even more successful than we anticipated in the first three years. And now we're starting to move into these uh, more challenging kind of messy areas. Mm -hmm. So this is really a public-private partnership uh, that you've achieved in Michigan. It is. That's, that's great. That it's rare to see both a public payer and a private payer uh, collaborate to to ensure better quality health care and, and, and more patient safety. I remember at the Michigan meeting, um, the there was a conversation and presentation of data showing that uh, the patient satisfaction with their management around uh, a surgical event uh, wasn't affected by offering lower doses and shorter course of, of, um, of pain medication, uh, that people often didn't take all of the pills that were prescribed to them, something that everybody's familiar with who's ever been given an opioid uh, prescription, and also that, um, that, that people were not complaining 
when when the judicious prescribing practices led to lower uh, lower doses and shorter courses. Uh, have I remembered that correctly? Perfectly. Uh, we've, we've now published a few studies in that space, but, um, you know, we started out sort of at a local level just saying, could we change one surgical condition and what would be the outcomes? And as you said, we drastically reduced prescribing after laparoscopic gallbladder removal. Um, this was led by one of our former medical students, Ryan Howard, who's now one of our surgery residents, who reduced prescribing and we saw no changes in refill requests, pain complaints. But what, what happened is when we gave people um, less pills, they actually took less pills. This concept of in the social psychology literature of called anchoring and adjustment. So um, it's just like with your plate of food. If I put more food on your plate, you'll eat more, but not necessarily because you wanted to eat more or you needed more, right? And so I think the same thing spill over to opioid prescribing. But our most, uh, I think, robust data to date in this space um, just came out in the New England Journal, um, led by one of our other really terrific uh, mentees, Jocelyn Vu. We disseminated our prescribing recommendations, and what we showed is that we reduced prescribing across the state by about 40% um, across 35 hospitals with no change in satisfaction or pain, uh, that we really made incredible changes. And we've reduced prescribing even further at a state level because we continue to see that as we give people less, they're taking less, their pain's well-managed, their satisfaction's high, and as we give them less, they still have excess pills. So we're not, um, in every case, looking to go to zero or saying opioids should never be used. But what we're seeing, consistent with what I think you see now in other countries like Sweden or other places in Europe where the healthcare system is just different, there are probably a lot of surgical conditions where we routinely prescribe opioids, but for which opioids are probably not warranted in most cases. Not indicated. Right. Something that did come up in Michigan that I have to say that I felt I hadn't thought enough about is the whole problem of, of demonizing opioid painkillers. Uh, and, uh, for example, uh, the health commissioner for the state of Massachusetts pointed it out to me that some pharmacies have signs up saying that they're not filling prescriptions. And, uh, you know, uh, of course... Um, there have been too many opioids prescribed, but these remain a useful part, an appropriate um, medication for patients. And some patients are now on them because they were prescribed them, and they can't simply be told, actually, time's up for you. More needs to be done for them because they uh, would be harmed by abrupt, uh, abrupt tapering. So I, I, uh, that, that's the flip side of the overprescribing that that there are people who are getting these drugs who were prescribed them and now need help because they're dependent on them. Uh, and there also are people who should be getting them uh, because it is the best management. Yeah, I, th I think you're, you're spot on there, Mary. And, and the, the truth is, is, even when you find a person who you don't believe is benefiting from the opioids, acute withdrawal is not an appropriate management plan. And, and you know, tapering and how long to taper, how, quick to, how quickly to taper, and at what point you should see benefit from a taper is still something where the science has lagged. And it's, it's there. these are complicated studies to do. We're seeing more data come out. But um, I would say that there, are a, a, there is a, a big portion of the chronic opioid-using population that would probably benefit from weaning down or even off. And yet there are some patients 
that show benefit. And by benefit, I mean, you know, pain relief, ability to function, you know, do activities, daily living without, you know, dose escalation or, or, or any, you know, behaviors that start to suggest opioid use disorder. And, and there is a population like that. And as I said, as a pain physician, uh, I do manage some of my patients with pain. I, I still struggle a bit because the evidence for the efficacy of opioids chronically is pretty poor, poor to none. And yet, um, and so I, I think where it becomes complicated is, you know, the people for whom I should start an opioid. But I think, again, if we go back to all the benefits of the CDC guidelines, the CDC guidelines really just laid out a roadmap to say, if you're going to start an opioid, uh, start low, go slowly, and as you're going along, reassess the patient. And I think that this seems very obvious and yet was not how we were managing patients for decades. We would give people a prescription, we would refill month over month, and just because of the way we manage patients' clinical care and the challenges of continuing to when I think about primary care physicians and the pressures to see patients day over day, lots and lots of patients, it's much faster to just refill the prescription than to really go into understanding the efficacy and any potential concerns. And and so I think there are some patients that benefit. There are some patients certainly that should be maintained. And even in the case where you feel like somebody needs to be weaned off, that's a structured process and shouldn't be, you, you really should never pull the rug. That's a really important thing to, po- to point out uh, to people who may be listening to this podcast. Thanks again, Chad. I'll see you soon. The weather's great in Boston, uh, so I-, I think you won't be disappointed. <laughs> Fantastic. Take care. Thanks, Mary. Bye-bye. Thank you. Special thanks to Drs. Chad Brummett and Mary Bassett for sitting down to this interview. To hear more conversations with public health experts and learn about new solutions to the opioid epidemic, visit us online. That's hsph.harvard.edu.